Hello. And welcome to a special presentation of Stasis Pod, the Transformers podcast. Uh, due to some sort of circumstances, we do not have a regularly scheduled episode this week. And so we've recorded a fill-in. Uh, it's a... Uh, yeah, well... Well, the, the, it, it's another. It's, well, the idea of bonus episodes is to record something ahead of time, yes. so we have something to slot in when shit happens. And, and September has been kind of busy with birthdays and, and holiday. Well, no, not really holiday. Things going on. Yes. And there wouldn't have been an episode probably this week, but then Rob watched a movie I've seen. That's right. It is another David classic. It is 1984's Streets of Fire. Only this isn't. This is just a movie with an interesting story going in both directions. Yes. So uh, this is it. It's kind of a musical. It kind of takes place in the fifties. It kind of takes place in the eighties. Yeah. It, it calling back to the last movie we did as a bonus episode, right? Uh, Cast the deadly, deadly spell, spell, which was. Set in the 50s, inspired by the 20s, filmed in the 80s. This is filmed in the 80s, but kind of set in the 50s, but not quite. Well, almost everything except for, like, a couple of characters are from the 50s. But, like, the movie opens with a musical number that is directly from the 80s. It's weird. Well, uh, I mean, the, the movie itself says that this is another time, another place. Oh, yeah, I forgot about, like, another time, another place, a rock and roll fable. Yes, so it's, it's, it's... it's, The, the another time, another place, I swear, is from something else. Mm, It's not ringing a bell offhand. It almost rings a bell, either that or it's just ringing a bell from the first of only two times I've seen this movie. And it, it was just, it was, that was a weird day, and we'll get into that at some point. So this is, uh, this is directed by Walter Hill, classic movie director. Uh, who I, it, it's one of those names I know I've heard, but what else has he done? Uh, let's see, The Warriors. Oh, that would explain a couple of the cast members. Uh, 48 Hours. Um, oh, yeah. Red Heat. Ooh. The Jim, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Jim Belushi movie. Yeah. Um, Trespass. Uh, Aliens Cubed? He, I think, I think he wrote the script and I think he produced it. Okay. Because he, I mean, there are a bunch of, like, he also, uh, co-wrote the script for Aliens. Oh. Oh. Okay, so uh, he's definitely a guy I've heard of many times, I just, I'm sometimes really bad with names, and Walter Hill is kind of a forgettable name. And in fact, and in he way. produced the original Alien. Ah. And, I mean, he's directed, he directed, you know, episodes of Tales from the Crypt, uh, Deadwood. Ooh. And uh, he said that every movie I've directed has been a Western. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, wait. Another 48, 48 hours, I guess? This, yeah, you can say it is a Western, but it is also like three different genres. And I mean, one I of can, them is punk. I mean, I can see 48 hours as, you know, like a, like a lawman takes an outlaw out of jail to catch another outlaw. Yeah. But yeah, you know, long, long filmography. Um, and he, he also, uh, co-wrote the script with Larry Gross, who also, who worked with him on 48 Hours. Ah. And has, you know, done various other things. Yeah, this, but, this uh, script is really punchy. Yes. I mean, this is, 
And I mean, you know, this is a movie that I think they wanted to be a big hit. And I think it was maybe a couple oh. of ca- I think it's, it's a little too weird to be a big hit. And kind of, yeah, but I, I could see it being a big, it is like, it doesn't have any big name actors at the time in it. Like, I think if like 84, like Tom Cruise was up for the role, I think if he'd got yes. the role, this if would be Tom a- Tom Cruise was in the lead, like this, this would not just be a cult classic, it would be a classic. Right. Apparently they, they, uh, they talked to Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, and Eric Ooh. Roberts. Oh yeah, they're sliding down the thing. The rest of the cast is great, I but Michael Paré as the lead, kind of the weak link of the movie. He is. I mean, I kind of think. I mean, I think all three of those guys. It's probably a better movie. I mean, Paré is. He's a bit of a stiff. It's he. He's okay for he, the role. The, the character is also a bit of a stiff. Yeah. For most of that, it works. But there are times it's like you need to emote something here. Yeah, so, Which so yeah. you can't always be the cool guy in a coat. So we we are in we are in the city of Richmond. Oh, that uh, actually does get a name. I mean, they mention streets and and the battery and areas, but it's so vague that it could be Chicago, it could be New York. I mean, I think it was shot partially in Chicago and partially in a bunch of elaborate sets. Yes, well. There's one big main set that I think it was like the first time I realized you can have a set that fucking big yes. and it could be good. Because, I mean, this, this movie... And still obviously a set. Like, it was fairly expensive for the 80s, uh, like like $15 million and it didn't make that. And I think this movie was... I think they thought this movie was going to be a bigger hit than it was, but this movie was kind of meant to be seen on VHS. Yeah... Yeah, it, it's very much like it's a rental movie mm, that looks way better than most rental movies are. And I think it became kind of like a cult hit on VHS. And apparently, as I'm sure uh, David will tell us, it was <laughs> a big hit in Japan. I can't give the specifics. Other than it came out in the 80s, Japan has like a greaser culture or something that loves the 50s. Mm-hmm. And this movie has a punk aesthetic... That was perfect for the 80s in Japan. It, it's like cyberpunk without the cyber. Well, because a lot of the sets, real and, and the big main set, it's gray, run-down, shitty, cyberpunk-looking city with lots of neon. Yes. It's just in the 50s. Right. And the it, It's got a lot of Blade Runner aesthetics without the... Uh, the yeah, it, it's it's very much like you could feel that this happened before Blade Runner, like a well, dozens of decades or a right, couple the, of decades. The past of Blade Runner, yeah. And we we open with indeed a musical number from Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Yes. Ellen Ain played by Diane Lane. Who, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't really think of her as like a musician. It, neither did I. Like, 
is like, oh right, she's in this movie and she sings. I, I'm not sure if she's actually singing, but the weird thing is, right around, uh, right around this time, she's also in uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I have no idea what that is. She, it's like an all-girl punk band. It's her oh. and uh, Laura Dern. Oh my god! I well, I gotta find that later. It's pretty good, worth a watch. The, the, the idea of her and Laura Dern singing is like just enticing. <laughs> Uh, it's also got a uh, a very young um, Brent Spiner in it. Ooh, wait, is he doing a serious role or comedy? Uh, vaguely, se- he he he's in it for like a scene. He has a oh. mustache. It's weird. <laughs> well, wow, I don't think I've ever seen him with a mustache. Yeah, I gotta find that. Actually, that uh, that movie also has Elizabeth Daly, who's in this movie. Hmm. So she's uh, she's giving a concert uh, organized by her boyfriend Billy Fish, played by. Rick Moranis, same year as Ghostbusters. Yeah, okay, this... With the, I might as well get out of the way how I saw this movie. At my friend's house in South Jersey. Going to college, like, I was in South Jersey, I live in North Jersey, but we would go to his his parents' house in South Jersey, in um, near Trenton, I forget the exact name of the town. Anyway, we'd go there, I think this was... Oh, yeah, this was uh, for Christmas or something. I was staying, I guess down at college for Christmas instead of going back up to North Jersey one year. We're sitting in his parents' house in their little side family room. We're watching movies because we're just hanging out. On their their parents' TV, which has motion smoothing. Oh. Don't worry. About 15 minutes into the movie, we fucking turn that off. However, we were just hanging out, drinking or something. And flipping through channels trying to find movies. Uh, I this may have been on HBO. I don't know. <laughs> but this, this was feels like, like a movie that was on HBO. Yes, but but this was in oh, I was in college so twenty years ago or so around then. Or, or maybe more than that. Maybe twenty five. No, less than twenty five. Anyway, it was quite a ways ago. But it was an eighties movie I hadn't seen seeing in the year like two thousand. It's like we were just all enraptured by this thing. It starts with a musical and, and there's violence and explosions. And what the fuck is Willem Dafoe doing here? <laughs> and it felt like a movie I had seen before, but I know I had never seen. And like, th- th- there was like three or four of us and just like more people ended up in the room watching this movie as it went on. We could not turn it off. Also, we were. Or I was at least probably drunk. Speaking <sighs> of which, I'm having uh, some hard cider right now, which I haven't had in a while, Ooh. which is nice. And I'm having a nice apple fritter. So, so yeah, so I found this movie like 20 years late and mm. fell in love with it, but that was the only time I saw it until mm. yesterday. Uh. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a, it looks great. So it rewards a rewatch. Yeah. Oh, it definitely does. Notice more things, more actors, more characters. Anyway, rolling back to Rick Moranis. Yes. This is the first time I've ever seen him play an unlikable asshole, and he's so good at it. He is. It's amazing. Like every other movie you've seen, like he's doing comedy, or or he's like a dad to shrunken children or something. Like, he's a likable guy. He's funny, or he's a goof in Ghostbusters or something. In this, he's playing... A redeemable piece of shit. It is funny, though, how he's kind of just a jerk for about 95% of the movie. And in the, his last scene there, I'll, ah, I guess you're okay. Well, he's not, 
like, you can't really blame him for kind of being a jerk in most well, of the no. scenes. <laughs> like, he has good reason to be pissed off. It's just that, that, like, he's just calling everyone a shithead, including himself, throughout the whole movie. So, yeah, so we, the, the musical number that opens, the, there are two musical numbers that open and close the movie, and they're both written by Jim Steinman, hmm. who is best known for his collaborations with Moon, with uh, Meatloaf. Okay, well, uh, I, I will boy, say... boy, does it sound like it. Starting, this, he picked the right song to start the movie with. It's fucking great. Like, well, most of the soundtrack is fucking great. Great sound. I mean, the the, the music is by Ry Cooter. Hmm. Um, but you've also got uh, songs by uh, The Fix. You've got uh, Stevie Nicks. Hmm. Yeah, it's great. Oh, uh, um... Wait, who are the... the... Sorrell's music by. Uh, boy, I am not sure exactly. Um, uh, written by Kenny Vance, who oh, was mm-hmm. in Jay and the Americans. Does he ring a bell? With a bun- they do great. They were kind of a big deal. Actually, they're going to come up in another movie that uh, involved Michael Paré that I'm going to talk about. Huh? Anyway, yes, uh, opening musical yeah. number that that is cross-cut with bikers wandering into town. Ah, uh, yes, these are the 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 bombers uh, led by Raven Shattuck, played by a very young Willem Dafoe with the most indescribable haircut I've ever seen. It it it's sort of like he's going for a greaser pompadour, but it it's sinking down in the front. He doesn't pull it off. It looks like. The most evil pompadour. It's like if you kind of combined, uh, like a Jerry only devil lock with a, um, with that, like, hair butt that Gary Oldman has in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, and, and a, li- a hint of flock of seagulls. Little flock of seagulls. It's, and um, boy, I, Defoe is crazy young in this. And yeah. Like just his introduction, like the, you see the bikers come in, and Cross got back to the the, the singing, and then Cross got the bikers standing in the back of the room, just these silhouettes of like their shadow monsters. Slowly, eventually, Willem Dafoe's face is lit up like the devil. I mean, excellent cinematography in this. This is uh, Andrew Laszlo. Oh yeah, he, he also shot uh, the Warriors. Ah, oh, there you go. And, uh, and, uh, First Blood. Hmm. And, uh, Inner Space, a favorite of mine. Oh, I haven't seen Inner Space in so long. Yeah. Then again, I, I, I don't like Martin Short anymore. Oh. I uh, usually watch, uh, Only Murders in the Building. It's good. Mm. It's him and, uh, Steve Martin and uh, Selena Gomez. Or, or at least I, I got annoyed with, with him around the time he had that Jiminy Glick talk show. Ugh. Yeah, that's intolerable. I, that, that is like, it's like, no, I don't want to watch your shit anymore, even though Three Amigos is one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, have I've you seen Three seen, Amigos? I have not seen Three Amigos. That's a future episode. <laughs> I grew up in a Chevy Chase averse household. Oh, understandable. Chevy Chase is an asshole. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, Raven and the Bombers just straight up steal her like it's the beginning of Double Dragon. Yeah, they they let her finish one song, then rush the stage. And just knocking out things. We, we have a, a quick shot of uh, Bill Pullman being punched off stage. 
he's got like a, a ridiculous pompadour in this movie. Yeah, he, he he like has the pompadour Willem Dafoe wanted before he's yeah, this deflated. Is, this this is young Paxton. Well, you could just say that about everyone in this movie. Yeah, it's true. There there are very few like actual adults in this movie. I mean, Moranis might be the oldest in the movie, and he he's still young. Be. He's probably like under thirty at this point. Yeah, he's probably like twenty eight or something. Mm. Anyway, a, a waitress uh, spots this, uh, played by Deborah Van Valkenburg. Who was also in The Warriors, and every also time... The Warriors. Every time I see her, it's like, wait, is that Rosario Dawson? No, no, it's not. She that, she would have to be way too old and white. Yes. But it's like, so, it's kind of uncanny how much she just looks like Rosario Dawson to me. It's weird. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so she, so she, uh, you know... She writes to her brother, who also happens to be Ellen's ex-boyfriend, and that is our hero, Tom Cody, uh, played yeah. by Michael Paré. How does that work? She's She writes a letter, sends a letter, he gets the letter, then has to take a train to town, and yet it feels like it's like two hours later. Yeah, they did not have a kidnapped for very long. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, they, that should have at least been a telegram, but it was clearly a letter. Uh, so you may know Michael Paré from uh, Eddie and the Cruisers. I don't know if I've seen that, but possibly. That is a uh, that is a classic New Jersey movie. Okay. Uh, it takes place in uh, you know there's scenes in Asbury Park. There's a scene in the Palace of Depression. The what? The the Palace of Depression. I <laughs> I have never been there. What is this? It is a makeshift castle made of junk in Vineland, New Jersey. Uh, oh. Who is? Have I? Been- Oh, I think I. I mean, you I haven't been there because I think they. I think it burned down in like the sixties. Okay, I, I I know I've seen pictures of this before. I didn't know what the fuck it was called. Yes, Palace of Depression. Jesus. And also, uh, that's also kind of like a weird fifties movie because he like he's a member of this legendary like rock band who disappeared. Hmm. It's uh, him, Ellen Barkin, Tom Berenger, and speaking of New Jersey, Joe Pantoliano. Oh, maybe I have seen that a long time ago. Anyway, so uh, so he comes to town. He oh, is he rolls into town looking like fucking Constantine. Yes, he you know he's got a, he's got a badass duster. He is a uh, he, I, he he he's got a real uh, Rick Deckard look to him. I, I have no idea what that means. To me, it's just like he looks the guy like, from uh, Blade Runner. Oh, Deckard. Yeah, yes, very much. Although Deckard had a nicer coat. Yes. But he rolls into town, but but then he takes the coat off and he's got a sleeveless denim shirt with suspenders on like he wandered out in out of the dust bowl. <laughs> Some of the costume choices in this are very weird. And notably, he's an ex-soldier. Yes, from the war. Yes. Some war. Presumably since it's the 50s, it's World War II. But this movie is so vague on location and time. Well, in fact, he meets a, a fellow uh, veteran uh, pl- uh, who is uh, McCoy, played by Amy Madigan. Yes. Uh, meets her after he roughs up a gang in his sister's bar or yes. restaurant by restaurant. throwing them out the window and stealing their car, which is a very nice car. And he didn't have a car, so he has a car now. There, There's some fantastic 50s cars in this movie. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, you may know Amy Madigan. She's in Field of Dreams, uh, Uncle Buck. Oh, okay. Like, it was, like, she has this horrible haircut and this leather cap on all the time. It's like, I know I've seen her before, but she looks bad. Well, I mean, she's, uh, if, if Jen were here, she would definitely tell us how lesbian coded this character is. Well, yeah, well, she, she tells Paré, it's like, you're not my type. Heavily leaning on that. It's like, you're a dude without actually saying I mean, she's, that. she's got this, she's got this haircut. She's an army veteran. She's a, she's a real yeah. grease monkey. Yeah. She's a great character. It's like, just that haircut is, it's like she's wearing a broom on her head. <laughs> so, you know, and she, she can, you know, she was in the motor pool and she can drive anything. So she's going to be, you know, she's, she's going to be part of the crew once Tom does agree to do this, but yeah. only when he's been paid for it. Yeah, it's very weird how she gets wet. Like, it feels like she should have been a friend of the sister already instead of just, he picks her up at a bar. Yes. After she punches out Bill Paxton. Yes. <laughs> Bill Paxton playing a classic Paxton asshole. Yes. This is, I think, a couple years before he would uh, be in Near Dark, which is maybe the best uh, Paxton performance. It's the most over the top, but it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's quite as over the top as uh, True Lies. I don't remember any True Lies. He's the uh, car dealer who's trying to have an affair with Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, I completely forgot about that. Oh, he's... I mean, he is the he is the nay-plus ultra of Paxton asshole in that. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, you know, Rick Moranis is going to pay this, but he's going to come with them. Well, because Pare wants to... What the fuck's Pare's name? Tom uh, Cody Tom Cody. Yeah. He wants Moranis to come with him. It's like, well, you know where the fuck we're going. You know the battery, mm-hmm. and I don't. Moranis does not want to go. But he wants his girlfriend slash singer slash meal ticket back. Yes. And, you know, it, you know they, they used to be together, but, uh, you know, they broke up. He joined the army, and, uh, you know, since... Moranis is like a rock promoter, producer, etc. He can really advance Ellen's career, which she is greatly interested in. Because she yeah. does not want to be in this in this town. Well, yeah, it's a town she grew up in. They, they came back to play one show, and shit went really bad. It's like, yes. no, we do not want to come back here. <laughs> and like, we, you should not have come to this town. We don't really find out exactly, you know, why Raven wants her, what exactly he intends to do with her. It, it, it is vague, rapey tones, and, and he's just—he's just a biker who captured a singer, and like he says, like he wants wants to date her for like a couple weeks, then that'll be enough. What? Very, very weird, dude. He's—he's he's a little underwritten, but he, I mean, well, he's Willem he, Dafoe. He—he he doesn't need to be uh, overwritten. He's just Willem Dafoe. Yes, being course- menacing as fuck. Okay, this is like maybe his first big, one of his first big roles. Probably. And I can understand why everyone hired him after this. It's like, I want that menacing guy with a frightening face. Oh, although he's in a Catherine Bigelow movie that I've never seen uh, prior to this, uh, oh. where he's also a biker, The Loveless. Wow, he was typecast as a biker. Yeah. That's weird. Well, then the year after this, he plays a... Uh, a psychotic counterfeiter in uh, To Live and Die in L.A., where he's great. Okay. 
That 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 sounds more like like I think of Willem Dafoe in suits, not in biker leather or the leather waders he has in this movie. His outfits are ridiculous. He, he is ready to dig some clams or something in this movie. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so they they, they get to uh, you know they get to the battery, and uh, you know this big rescue mission takes place. It is at uh, Torchy's Bar, which is like a converted warehouse, and like. There's a strange biker bar hangout where there are very few women and there's lots of leather-clad guys. I was not exactly sure what kind of bar this was. It it does not help. Well, it makes it more interesting. The androgynous dancer yes. who's stripping. And what I, I actually had to look up. It's like, okay, her name is Maureen. But okay. in the movie... They're dancing so quickly, and yet stripping... We see them in a thong for half of the time they're on screen. Yes. But there's not a close enough shot of the crotch. And they're wearing a crop top that cuts off right before where boobs would end. But she's so, let's be honest, flat. That it's like, wait, is that a dancing dude? And at the very end of her, her their striptease, she takes her top off while facing away from the camera. So it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this a gay bar? I don't know. It, that that was one of the things that struck me the first time I saw this movie. It's like, wait, what? What's going on? And, uh, it, it's, it's like, not it's a bad thing. And it's not like played as it's a bad thing. It's just this thing that's happening on the side while Willem Dafoe has captured a woman. It, it's like, it's Raven's birthday and the other bikers let him steal a woman. I mean, they're not necessarily in this movie, but certainly in sort of early 80s sort of exploitation movies, there is an association of homosexuality with sort of debauchery and yeah, decadence. But it's, and Like, it's not playing this directly no, as no. if, like, they're gay bikers? No, this isn't like Mad Max 2 or anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. Or, or any of the Mad Maxes, really, well, into the lighter ones. It's just this thing that's like, wait, what is going on? In an interesting way, it's like, wait... Is that a male stripper? Is that a female stripper? Oh. It, it's just, well, possibly because I was drunk when I first saw this movie. <laughs> it was one of those things that stuck out to me. It's like, I don't think I've seen a movie do this before. And we also see a fair bit of uh, Defoe's number two here, played by Lee Ving. Okay. That uh, you do. may recognize him as the most prominent murder victim in uh, Clue. The body? Yeah, Mr. Body. Oh. And, huh. and I'll explain he, why I've seen that face before, but him talking was really bizarre. And he's also the lead singer of, uh, well, he talks in Clue. Yeah, for very short, he's a corpse. He's the body most Wait, of the movie. And then he, he's also the lead singer of uh, famously obnoxious punk band Fear. Yeah. Uh, I love living in the city. I don't Ooh. care about you. You're naming titles and I am bad with music. Uh, they also trashed the set of SNL so badly they were not invited back. And oh, I have heard of them. Episode was banned <laughs> from reruns. Oh, wow, he is a singer. That's bizarre. Oh, Although, he, singer does not sing in this movie. No. Well, like, there's, I don't know, at least six different songs that happen diegetically in the movie, yeah. at least. I mean, I, well, I think Paré is... Uh, I think he sang in Eddie and the Cruisers. And he doesn't sing this movie. He doesn't. 
emote much in this movie. No, he's kind of a stiff. Uh, so, but anyway, after after many shot out gas tanks and exploding motorcycles, yeah, it, it's weird, like like he sends. Oh, what the fuck is her name? What is her character name? Uh, Ellen Aim. No, he sends the the girl with the shitty hair. Oh, uh, McCoy. He sends McCoy into the bar to rabble-rouse and attract attention while Paré is basically sitting, squatting on a rooftop for like 10 minutes before yes. he does anything. But when he does anything, he just exploding bikes out in front of the bar. So oh, it's like, yeah. oh, you are going to do something. And it's impressive. <laughs> and Defoe's go, going, well, after he talks to Ellen Aim in the back room, is like, I'm going to do things to you, but they're very vague. <sighs> then he goes back with his boys to play cards. Yeah, so so she's stolen. They the 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 bikers give chase. Uh, Tom blows up oh. this gas station. We we skipped over. Well, dude, there's a lot of little. There's so many characters in this that are actors. It's like, oh shit, I've seen you before. <laughs> and Begley Junior is just this random homeless guy. They give money. To oh, for that's right. Yes. <laughs> like I saw. Well, when he wanders out of the shadows, I thought, is that the fucking Highlander? It's like, oh no, it's Ed Begley Jr. He was almost unrecognizable. <laughs> yes. Well, especially since I'm used to, you know, Ed Begley Jr. being much, much older. Yeah, he's just, he's there for like two minutes and vanishes. Yes. <laughs> it's like, how are there so many actors in this movie who went on to bigger things? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think Begley Jr. might have been known-ish at that point. Probably, but but well, what, I mean, his, like, his his father was a well known actor. Well, yeah, this wasn't like the first movie of so many people. No, but there's so many people who like we recognize easily in the yes. movie, like Robert Townsend. <laughs> the fuck? I mean that that whole um, all of the all the Sorels are like fairly prominent character actors. Yeah, but it's it's like it's like I saw Robert Townsend. Like I know that face, and it's skinnier. He's the, the meteor fuck? man. Well, yes, but it's like, he's just so much younger and skinnier in this movie. He's like a beanpole. So anyway, he, you know, uh, Michael Parade blows up this gas station, and then Will DeVoe just walks out of the flames like he's the Terminator. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like in his waders. The same year as this, I know. Oh, ooh. Anyway, so he's yeah, just he, menacingly evilly, and like he's almost flirting with Paré, and is like, "What's your name, bitch?" That might just be a Willem Dafoe thing. I, I guess it's Willem Dafoe thing. Like he's his version of evil is also flirting yes. to the Green Goblin. He, he's always a kind of sexy villain. Yes. Anyway, so he he escapes on this motorcycle, and you know. He reunites with the group, and Ellen is unhappy because, you know, she she assumed that Tom just did this out of the goodness of his heart, but he was really just doing it for the money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah. No shit, who would do this for no money? Let's see it. So, yeah, they go back, and, you know, the cops are looking for, you know, what's going on here. The, the cops are pretty ineffectual here. Well, there's three levels of cops. There's the one good cop. There's cops who ain't doing shit, and then there's outright evil cops who take bribes. Yes. And most of them are the evil cops who take bribes. Well, in fact, one of these guys is uh, Rick Rosovich, who, uh, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. a big white guy, who is in a ton of 80s movies. Oh. Um, I think he's he's that boyfriend who gets killed in 
uh, Terminator. Okay. He's, he's one of the guys playing beach volleyball in uh, Top Gun. Oh. Okay. Yeah, you see yeah, him yeah, in a sure. lot of things. He's like a guy with kind of like yeah. a big square head. Yeah, big, big long head. Yeah, he, he stands out. But uh, yeah, the the one good cop is Richard Lawson, who uh, he's in Poltergeist. And I think he was on that he was on that show V that I've never hmm. seen. Oh, huh. Uh, Koja. Oh yeah, he was all over. The no, place apparently he's also Beyonce's stepfather. Hmm. Neat. So, you know, good for you, Richard Lawson. And I I, lo- I love the cop uniforms in this. They're very fifties. They're very Batman the Animated Series. And there is, I, I mean, I know this was clearly very influential on anime. It might have also been influential on Batman the Animated Series. Probably, considering exploding bikes and rooftops, yes. <laughs> anyway, so they, we, we get another member of the group hooking up with them here. Uh, this is Baby Doll. Who, who just randomly latches onto yeah, it while they're wandering through, I think, the red light district? Yeah, well, this, and this is uh, Elizabeth Daly. Okay. She looked familiar, but in a way, it's like, I'm not going to bother looking it up. I mean, she's she's in, like, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh. Uh, but she, you may know her better as a voice actor. She's also in, uh, she's uh, one of the Powerpuff Girls. Oh, shit. No wonder her high squeaky voice was familiar. Yes, she's, she's done a ton of bubbles? voice acting. Uh, Buttercup, shit. Uh, also, one of the Rugrats. Oh, oh yeah. So, yeah, she's in a ton of stuff. Uh, so yeah, so she she kind of hooks up with them, and they end up having to, uh, you know. They have to sort of escape from the police, so they yeah. end up uh, commandeering... Stealing another vehicle. Yeah, well... They they end up stealing the Millennium Falcon noises. Yes. <laughs> it makes the fucking Millennium Falcon noise. That's her... I uh, that, think that, Walter Hill might be pals with Lucas or something. Probably, or or that noise was from uh, that Greaser movie Lucas made. Oh, uh, um, American Graffiti. Yeah. It's probably originally that, a noise from that from a shitty car. Yeah, so it they, makes more sense as a shitty car here. It's just, it's the Millennium Falcon noise. Yeah, so they, they end up, uh, yeah, uh, high, they end up commandeering the bus of a uh, kind of a Motown-ish doo-wop group called the Sorrells. Yeah, the, the, a singing quartet by, like, threatening the driver with a gun who's also, like, the lead singer. And he's um, like, fuck it, okay, yeah, yeah I'm so, flexible, I don't want to get shot by no white boy. Yeah, so, so one of these guys is uh, Stoney Jackson, he's been in a bunch of stuff, he's maybe most famously in uh, the Beat It music video. Hmm. Uh, one guy, as previously mentioned, is Robert Townsend, the meteor man himself. Oh, I'm not sure he has many lines in this movie, it's just that I, like, and he's very I knew his face. <laughs> yes. Uh, another guy is McKelty Williamson, who is uh, Forrest Gump's uh, pal Bud- Bubba. Oh, dang it! I knew there was like I I I made sure to look up Robert Towns. Is like I swear that's Robert Towns, and it was. I mean, he's I in look up he's in everything. He's Don King in Ali. He's in Species Two. He's in Con Air. He's in Heat. Mm. He's in two Free Willy movies. <laughs> the guy's in everything. And then the fourth guy is Grand L. Bush, who is also like a big character actor. He was on Good Times. He's in Lethal Weapon. Uh, he's in License to Kill. He's in Die Hard. Ooh. In uh, Die Hard, he's one of the FBI agent Johnsons. Hmm. 
Oh, he's in Demolition Man? He's in Exorcist uh, Exorcist 3, Free Jack, Turbulence. <laughs> he's also in Forrest Gump. In Forrest Gump, yeah. He was ba- he's Balrog! He's Balrog ah. in Street Fighter. He's in everything. I love Grand Elbush. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, you know. Anyway, the- all cops are bastards. <laughs> yeah, they because they are at one point boarded by cops who are, turns out, looking for bribes and are also super racist. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. the fuck the police comes up many times in this movie, which is entertaining. Yes, except for the one good cop. I mean, there's I, also I, a black guy. Oh, yeah. And I, 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 I do appreciate that the Sorrells do recognize Ellen Aim, and they're kind of wondering about uh, like getting in as they're her opener, even as they're being sort of kidnapped. Yeah. They're trying to get something good out of this of being kidnapped. And and then their bus gets ditched with all their money and all their clothes. Yes. So they They're just out have, thousands of dollars they just because have to, some white guy with a coat and a shotgun stole their bus. Yeah, they just have to take the train home. Uh, it, it's weird how, like, so many characters in this movie are unlikable, except for the Sorrells. I mean, they're they're just trying to do their jobs. They're just... And yet, well, by the end of the movie, they make out the best by being the only decent people in this movie. Like, you have from shitty Rick Moranis to stiff Michael Paré to Ellen. Even the, the the singer who was kidnapped is kind of a bitch. She's a little cold in this. I mean, it, yes. it, it has... I mean, understandably so. She's a, a singer under pressure who was kidnapped, and her boyfriend got her back by using her ex-boyfriend. It's like, ah. Uh. I mean, it's it, it's got certain... It's definitely got strong like noir overtones yes yeah it well it's trying to be noir but it's missing and hitting so many other things well yes it's trying to be a lot of things at once like your basic noir hero gets the shit kicked out of him at least once if not multiple times and yet our main character does not well until the end of the movie kind of but not really Anyway, so, you know, they, they get back home, you know, she doesn't want anything to do with her hometown, doesn't want anything to do with Michael Paré, and, you know, Michael Paré gets his money, but then he just chucks most of it back at Rick Moranis, and, except for Amy Madigan's cut. I, yeah, he was gonna give her 10%, which amounted yes. to $1,000, but I was screaming at him for many things. The Sorrells, you fucked their bus, which was worth at least $1,000, their sheet music, their clothes, everything they have, that's worth at least another $1,000. So they're owed at least $2,000 from you, you fuck. And what about the window of your sister's restaurant you fucked at the beginning of the movie? (laughs) You should have kept $5,000 to give to these people. Well, and do- then throw the other half in Moranis's It face. does look like you the Sorrells are at least going on tour with Ellen Aim at the yes, end of the movie. they do. Th- their career is skyrocketing at the end of the movie. <laughs> but they've still been fucked out of $2,000. But, but of course, you know, she does, you know, she we, we get the big dramatic kiss with uh, Paray and yeah, Diane in the Lane. Rain, in the rain, uh, of course. And then I thought it was like, oh, okay, whatever they're going to do. And then it cuts right to them fucking while they're still wet. Oh, yeah. Dripping wet in bed. Well, it's the afterglow of the fuck. It, it, it's like um the the last movies. Uh, cast a deadly spell. Cast a deadly spell. Another surprise. Oh, they fucked. Yeah. Without actually seeing the fuck. Like, yeah. 
I'm a little surprised it is a movie from the mid-80s and does not have any gratuitous nudity. A little shocking. Yeah, well, it doesn't always happen, but, no. well, we have the stripping dancer who, if the camera had turned around, we would have seen chest. This, this is true. Anyway, it, it's now time for Willem Dafoe to come in with uh, every biker in the Tri-County area. Well, no, for, for he tells the, the chief, the local chief of police or whatever the fuck, the one good cop, it's like... I want to beat the shit out of Michael Paré. Give him to me. I'm just bringing two of my boys with me, and I'll have that done. Yes. And, and then the good cop says, Paré, get the fuck out of town so I can arrest Raven, Willem Dafoe, because, oh my God, it's just going to be him and his two boys. Yes. And, and you know, but, so... But then all the cops show up, and Paré isn't there, although he would... He's, like, he slugged his ex-girlfriend yeah, on a butt, the train. What I the mean, fuck? I mean, you know how... Uh, in, I think, Back to the Future 2, Marty's girlfriend gets, what is it, she gets tranquilized or something to sort of get her out of the way of the plot of the movie until it's convenient? Yeah, that that happens in this movie by punching yeah, her Yeah, out. she just gets punched in the face. It's ridiculous. Which is, again, unlikable characters. Yes. And so, yeah, he has this dual... With yeah, well, uh, yeah, because because with Willem Dafoe. Dafoe, it's like, oh no, you didn't have him here, and you have all these cops. Then he blows a little air horn, and all his boys show up on bikes. Yes. It's like, well, fuck. And then it's time for a sledgehammer duel. Yes. Oh, also like the the mad bombers what bomb at midnight because they were blowing up. They're setting fire to the tracks so trains couldn't leave. Yes. But yes, we have Sledgehammer Fight, which, again, like, every 20 minutes something really interesting happens in this movie, basically, or maybe every 15 minutes. But, like, the Sledgehammer Fight's like, okay, there's going to be a final confrontation in this movie, but Sledgehammers? What? I mean... Why? I mean, it's impressive. This Sledgehammer Fight rules. It's filmed, like, most of it's filmed really close, probably mm-hmm. to disguise, like, gimmick Sledgehammers for half of it. Mm-hmm. I would assume... But, like, it's a pretty long fight. It's just, it's a lots and lots of cuts to disguise the fact that we're not actually going to kill Willem Dafoe with a sledgehammer. No. He, but it still looks great. He gets beaten. But, uh, but he, he leaves alive, you know. The, the Yeah, that was surprising. Like, even though I'd seen this movie before, I forgot, oh, the bikers just pick up Willem Dafoe's little crippled body off the ground and ride away. <laughs> Well, apparently, apparently they wanted to do a sequel. Yeah, it, it, technically there. Well, technically there is and isn't a sequel. Yes, uh, that was. But a, it was made in like two thousand and seven, and and with the, only some of the actors and not the director or writer. Or anything. Well, it's got Michael Pare and it's got yeah. uh, his sister, and nobody else. And directed by Schlockmeister Albert Pion. Yes, uh, and it's filmed on green screen or some shit. I, I've seen I'll, clips or stills of it. It does not look good. No. You know, I mean, a lot of these movies that were really sort of cult hits kind of wanted to have sequels. See also uh, Buckaroo Banzai versus the World Crime League. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the problem is even if you had made a sequel in like the early 90s, what? I mean, most of the interesting characters are the side characters, and you would think the story would follow Michael Paré, the least interesting part of it. Yeah. Like, no? 
I mean, can we follow Willem Dafoe? Unless you get Willem Dafoe back and he comes back to beat the shit out of Rick Moranis. <laughs> so, I don't care. Yeah, so, so anyway, uh, Michael Prey does ride off with Amy Madigan and we get another musical number from Diane Lane with the Sorrells as, yeah, well, uh, as they the movie have closes. a song first. They yes. have a song first, which is great. Uh, can I dream about you? Great oh, song. I love that song. And then we go to her song and right. then they come in as backup and that's like, the weakest song of the entire movie for me. Like, it's a flat note to go out on, kind of compared to how great all the other music is. And, and that's also, that's a Nowhere Fast, I believe, which is also a Jim Steinman production. I mean, it could be, if it was played faster, a different version of that song could be great, but in the movie, it's kind of, eh, we're going out the week. We're going on to the flat number. <laughs> And Rick Morianis gets the girl. He does get the girl. And he he, uh, he kind of gets like an, oh, you're okay, Rick Morianis, moment at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he's not completely an asshole. No. He's just been through shit and is is a mouthy little bastard. Yes. Yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a wild movie, and it is a strong recommend for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a movie, like, I, I saw it on accident and was enthralled by this damn thing. Mm. And and many scenes of this movie, particularly opening, are like, I have seen this movie before. Not in the, this is familiar, in that I have seen anime directly rip this shit off. And it's amazing. Because again, big in Japan. Big in Japan. I, like, I don't know how it made it there. I, I, I mean, someone's probably researched this, like how it inspired anime, particularly cyberpunk anime of a movie that's in the fictional 1950s about the f- near future with, with cyberpunk. It's, it's amazing how inspirational a movie about Willem Dafoe trying to beat the shit out of somebody with a sledgehammer could be while wearing <laughs> waders. What the fuck? <laughs> the clothing. <laughs> Uh, great movie, yes, watch. Yes. Go, go find. All right, so I think that about does it for us uh, for this week. Uh, we'll be back the next time that we need a gap filler in our schedule, and we'll be talking about something that was directly influenced by this movie, so stay tuned. Yes, <laughs> yes we're recording two things together. Spoilers, a little tease, at some point later, we're, I'm going to be forcing Rob to watch an episode of Bubblegum Crisis. And I'll be forcing David to explain to me what bubblegum crisis means. <laughs> well, there's a real simple answer to that one. Actually, two answers, really, but... Okay, then. That's us for tonight. Goodbye. Right, good night. <laughs>